What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Weekend update with Norm MacDonald. I'm Norm MacDonald, and now, the fake news. <laughs> Yesterday, Simpson trial judge Lance Ito allowed that mystery envelope to be opened, and it appears Simpson may already have won $10 million. <laughs> the first deaf Miss America, Heather Whitestone, was crowned last week in Atlantic City. Although completely deaf, she is an expert lip reader. Personally, I don't think she's that pretty, you know. I, uh, not, uh, my cup of tea. Well, David Hasselhoff is a huge rock star in Germany, where his latest album sold five million copies this week, which once again proves my theory, Germans love David Hasselhoff. <laughs> Christy Brinkley told reporters this week that her marriage to Billy Joel was over long before their divorce. The key moment, she said, came when she realized that she was Christy Brinkley and that she was married to Billy Joel. <laughs> story this week marked the 5,000th performance of the Broadway musical Cats. It also marked the 5,000th time a guy turned to his wife and said, what the hell is this? Good morning. It's Tuesday, Trump Tuesday, January the 9th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the patriotic song of the day, we will have news shorts, patriotic shorts, motivation shorts, Bishop Barron, Ayn Rand, the 33 strategies of war, and an excerpt from one of former President Donald Trump's speeches. All that and more when I get back. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I shouldn't change, the courage to change the things I should, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.
Thank you, thank you. And now the news shorts. Well, that basically has officials worried about things like power outages, dangerous road conditions. Several school districts have canceled classes for the day already. And actually speaking of power outages, close to a quarter of a million Americans in the Midwest and South already without power this morning. More broadly, 54 million Americans from Texas up into Michigan, obviously covering the Des Moines area, and then up into New England under those winter storm alerts. And then you mentioned, I mean, the triple threat that is this thing. We talk about the wind. Some of the wind gusts that we've seen, especially yesterday, Yesterday, going into last night, topping 70 miles per hour. Nebraska, in particular, there goes a plow here in Des Moines. Nebraska, in particular, was a mess yesterday. We saw wreck after wreck after wreck, with authorities say at least one of them being fatal. Back here in the Iowa uh, territory, obviously, uh, back here in Iowa, more broadly looking at timing, this is also messing with politics. We're less than a week out from the caucuses, guys. Well, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is out of intensive care this morning, but he remains hospitalized. And there's continued fallout surrounding the lack of transparency over his hospital stay. As you know, the defense secretary did not tell anybody he was in the hospital for several days. The White House said yesterday that President Biden has no plans to replace Austin, will not fire him. He continues to have, quote, full trust in the secretary. But Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale is planning to introduce articles of impeachment against Austin on the floor today, the floor of the House of Representatives. Rosendale said that Austin has, quote, violated his oath of office time and time again and has jeopardized the lives of the American people. Joining me right now is Fox News senior strategic analyst chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, General Jack Keane, back with us. General, great to see you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Happy New Year to you and your team. I want to get your take on this, General, because I've heard from a number of military men, and I don't know, people are upset, okay? They're upset that we knew nothing about this hospital stay. In Fort Worth, Texas, a violent explosion at a historic building has injured nearly two dozen people. And firefighters search what's left of the Sandman Signature Hotel after yesterday's blast. We're looking at after uh, results of the explosion. Omar Villafranca has more on what happened and some of the people trapped inside. Holy the blast at the century-old building was powerful enough to rip large chunks off the facade and send debris hurling into downtown Fort Worth streets. Around 3.30 p.m. on Monday, the suspected gas explosion rocked the Sandman Signature Hotel, blowing out at least the first two floors. Something just blew up outside my office. Oh, my God. 21 people sustained non-life-threatening injuries. Fire officials described a chaotic scene with some of the injured even treated on street corners. We did extract several people from the basement that weren't able to get out on their own. 26 rooms were occupied in the 20-story building, and crews had to put out a fire inside. I really thought it was a bomb, and then I started smelling the gas. Officials are looking into exactly what caused the explosion. The hotel said in a statement that it's working with first responders and will help those injured. For CBS Mornings, I'm Omar Villafranca, Fort Worth, Texas. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken landing in Tel Aviv about a few hours ago. It is visit number five to that city. He will continue his work on preventing the war from spreading. He will also meet with top Israeli leaders on ramping down their attacks in Gaza. The tensions are now starting to skyrocket. As Hezbollah saying one of its leaders was killed in Lebanon today. An airstrike launched by Israel hit an SUV with a commander and a secretive Hezbollah force inside Wissam Al-Tawi is the most senior Hezbollah leader to be killed since the Hamas attack on Israel back on October 7th. Secretary Blinken had this to say on those rising tensions in the Middle East. It's clearly not in the interest of anyone, Israel, Lebanon, Hezbollah for that matter, uh, to, see this, uh, to see this escalate and to see an actual conflict. And the Israelis have been very clear with us that they want to find a diplomatic way forward, a diplomatic way forward that creates the kind of security that allows Israelis to return home. Nearly 100,000 Israelis have been forced to leave their homes in northern Israel because of the threat uh, coming from uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon, but also allows Lebanese uh, to return to their homes in southern Lebanon. And we're working intensely on that effort. Well, please understand, I voted against the debt ceiling increase because I see how the spending is growing. I was a business owner 35 years, owned my own air conditioning company. You just can't keep spending money you don't have. And so, yes, the border is a big part of it. 
you know we're spending millions and billions of dollars for illegals coming across. Even the mayor of New York, the mayor of Denver, a lot of these mayors are understanding. You know, they're crying because they're getting whatever, a couple thousand, five thousand, ten thousand illegal immigrants. In Texas, we get five thousand a day. We can't sustain this. Uh, according to Ballotpedia, there's, uh, I'm forgetting how many school districts in the United States, but kindergarten through 12, we're bringing in kids, Maria, that somebody's going to have to pay to teach as much as 20 school districts in, in December alone. This is un unsustainable, and the border is a huge part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand what you're saying. And it's amazing to me that you are having such a hard time getting any movement whatsoever on any policy change at the border. What are you going to do about it? I mean, how Jason Chaffetz with me now. All right, Jason, where is AOC? She represents New York City, or at least part of it. They're being flooded with migrants. Where is she on this? Where are the rest of the Democrats on this? Uh, they're dead silent. You know, there's 85,000 plus uh, minors that are unaccounted for. And you'd think there'd be some tears like she had when Trump was president and that she'd get after this. Look, I loved what you said. I think you're absolutely spot on. And, and the stresses that happen in our economy uh, are very real. This was a choice by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. They changed the policy of the United States starting on day one. So this was their choice to not enforce the current law. If we would just enforce the current law, we could solve this problem. That's what the Border Patrol is telling us. But remember, when you pour four, five, six million people into the marketplace, guess what? They have to have housing and food and they, and they want the shelter and they need uh, medical services. And so when you're looking at all the rentals and the stress on the housing market, guess what? This adds to it, exacerbates the problem for the lower class people who are trying to just get by, make the checks and, and get a, a place to rent. And it's happening all across the country, just as you said. I, I have the feeling that the border is just as important as an election issue as the economy. Now, that's saying quite a lot because the economy is traditionally the big issue. You think this possible? The, the border becomes just as important I, as the economy? I, I think it does. I, I think it absolutely does. And uh, I see it going hand in glove because it puts these these big cities, they're yelling and screaming now. You got Mayor Adams, the mayor of, of Chicago, and saying, look, this is going to cost us billions and billions of dollars. And unlike the federal government, they can't just print that money. So it's going to put a stress on all of the other services. So when you live in one of those big cities and you don't have the police, you don't have the social services, you don't have those other things. Guess what? You can blame Biden and Harris because because they're the ones that made this decision. And those mayors, like Mayor Adams on the screen right now, they have not denounced these sanctuary city policies and this sanctuary state. That's why these migrants continue to flood into these places. Donald Trump's legal team could file challenges against Colorado and Maine as soon as today. Uh, both those states disqualified him from the ballot. Look, we're less than two weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. Is this going to help or hurt Trump's campaign? Um, I, I think Donald Trump has shown that he's somewhat immune to all of these different suits and whatnot. He's created sympathy. It's sucked oxygen out of the room. So people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley can't get the oxygen they need in order to make their case to their voters. Their stories are always out there. D Donald Trump is on a trajectory that is just we haven't seen it before. But that lawsuit needs to get in place sooner rather than later so that the court can consider it and put it on its calendar. They, we don't have much time to waste. I, I, it should have happened probably last week. Amazing, isn't it? Less than two weeks to the Iowa caucuses, and here we go again, the presidential campaign. Jason, good stuff. Thanks for joining us. On January 1st, 2024, Secretary Austin was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center with complications from the December 22nd procedure including nausea with severe abdominal hip and leg pain. Initial evaluation revealed a urinary tract infection. On January 2, the decision was made to transfer him to the ICU for close monitoring. He's progressed steadily throughout his stay. His infection is cleared. He continues to make progress and we anticipate a full recovery, although this can be a slow process. The department recognizes the understandable concerns expressed by the public, Congress, and the news media in terms of notification timelines and DOD transparency. 
Yesterday, the Secretary's Chief of Staff directed the DOD's direction, Director of Administration and Management to conduct a 30-day review of the Department's notification process for assumption of functions and duties of the Secretary of Defense. While the review is underway and effective immediately, the Chief of Staff also directed several actions to ensure increased situational awareness about any transfer of authorities from the Secretary of Defense to include ensuring that the DOD General Counsel, the Chairman and Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Combatant Commanders, the Service Secretaries, the Service Chief of Staff, the White House Situation Room, and Senior Staff of the Secretary and Deputy Secretary of Defense are all notified, and that the notification for transfer of authorities includes an explanation of the reason. And that was the news shorts. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the military shorts. This Cuban pilot defected to the United States, then flew back to save his family. He made his daring escape on March 20th, 1991, when he diverted from a Cuban Air Force training mission in a MiG-23 and headed for Florida. Of course, flying in a Cuban plane, he knew he could be shot out of the sky as soon as he entered American airspace. So he flew low to avoid being picked up on radar until he reached the Naval Air Station at Key West. Then he circled three times and wiggled his wings to show his friendly intentions. After landing, he was immediately welcomed and taken to Washington. For the first time in his life, he was a fully free citizen. But there was a problem. His family was still stuck in Cuba. So, a little over a year later, he hopped in a Cessna 310 and flew back to the very island he had just escaped from. Once again, he flew low to avoid radar, then landed on a highway where his family ran out to meet him. Once back in the U.S., all four became American citizens. She flipped a coin with her mother to determine if they would fly or take the train back to Hollywood. She had just completed a series of war bond events that would raise over $2 million, and she was anxious to see her husband, Clark Gable. She was Carol Lombard, one of the leading ladies of Hollywood, and considered by many to be the first female American casualty of World War II. Carol won the coin toss and boarded a plane full of military personnel, much to her mother's chagrin, who reluctantly joined her. Shortly after takeoff, it struck Mount Potosi in Nevada, killing everyone instantly. The devastated Clark Gable was inconsolable. Why did Ma leave me? Why? was all he could say for weeks. It was rumored that he took on dangerous missions as a B-24 gunner because he wanted to die, something he never denied. The FBI would open a file suspecting potential Axis sabotage, but the investigation proved inconclusive. People love to tell me they know amputees that stay in. Every Marine's a rifleman. It was really hard for me to do all of the Marine Corps things outside of my job. But there was actually a Marine in Wounded Warrior Battalion when I was there. Stop me and he's like, whatever you do, get out now with your benefits. He was a Marine. He got blown up in Afghanistan, lost his right leg. He ended up rehabbing and redeploying as an amputee. Inevitably, his body started breaking down. And he's like, okay, I guess it's time. I'm going to get out of the Marine Corps. They were telling him, well, your amputation is not a disqualifying factor anymore. You proved that you can continue your job with an amputation. Therefore, you get no disability for it. He's like, suck up your ego and just get out now if you want the benefits the way you're supposed to. This system is so broken. It's so hard to get benefits that you deserve. Either people have messed up in the past or people in charge just don't know what they're talking about. The Chinese Navy attempted to block a Philippine ship in the South China Sea, causing a near collision. Chinese ships often attempting to collide with Philippine ships, which often forces the Philippine Navy to retreat. But the Philippines says it'll continue to expose China's aggression and imperialism. And in response to this, the U.S. reaffirmed that an armed attack in the Pacific, which includes the South China Sea, on Philippine armed forces, public vessels, or aircraft would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments. Follow to stay in the loop. Love this story. Graduation is a huge milestone, and graduating from Marine Boot Camp is no small feat. This year's graduation in Paris Island was extra special because families could finally attend again. For Cedar Ross, his great-grandfather was able to attend, the legendary Marine Herschel Woody Williams. Williams wow. is the last living Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. He says the only advice that he gave his great-grandson was to do the very best that he could 
and then do a little more. A special moment for this family, and thank you all for your service. But how cool that he got to see his mm -hmm. great-grandson graduate from Marine Boot Camp. Seeing anyone dressed up like that is amazing, but when it's your family member, that's got to be a whole different feeling. Congratulations. Yeah. The only person that I didn't realize had done so much that night until I got back and saw those vehicles and then heard the stories. Who died two, three days later when a mortar round landed basically on him right after a memorial ceremony for all those we had lost on 3 October was Matt Ryerson. He came out for us four or five times at least. He turned around, come back, drop off the wounded, recruit more, and come back out again. Lose people, turn around, go back, get more, and come back out again. Two days later, he died when a mortar round hit him and took out our commander as well. Our commander had been gravely wounded. I mean, he pulled through. I'll never forget his screaming. I'll never forget as tough of a man as he was. He just recently passed away, just screaming in pain, and it wouldn't stop. I remember laying in the bunker. He made us all go to the bunker and just covering my ears. Couldn't hear it anymore. He had just entered the seminary at Davidson College when he was drafted in 1943. A deeply religious man, he objected to taking up arms and was assigned to the Navy Reserve where he became a corpsman. His name was William Halliburton and he had reached the rank of pharmacist mate second class when he was sent overseas to join the 1st Marine Division on Okinawa. The date was May 10, 1945, Halliburton's first day of combat, and the Marines were attempting to cross the Awacha Draw, a strategically important ravine dubbed Death Valley because of its heavy fortifications. It was there that he saw a badly wounded Marine stuck in no man's land, clinging to life. Disregarding his own safety, he zigzagged 200 yards under intense Japanese fire and covered the wounded Marine with his body while administering life-saving medical assistance. He took three bullets before succumbing to his wounds. William Halliburton received the Medal of Honor posthumously, and in 1984, the USS Halliburton was commissioned in his honor. This FedEx plane has a laser missile defense system. Let me explain. This equipment was made by Northrop Grumman. Incoming missiles are countered by a multi-band infrared laser, a technology designed to protect aircraft from unexpected threats. But why would a delivery giant like FedEx need a defense system against missiles? The answer lies in past incidents. Back in 2003, a DHL Express cargo plane was the victim of a missile strike, causing severe damage to its left wing which led to a complete hydraulic failure. Thankfully, the skilled crew managed to land the aircraft, but not all incidents ended in the same way. These missiles often come from shoulder-launched surface-to-air missiles and still pose a serious threat today. Over the past half-century, 40 incidents have occurred. However, the problem is that this advanced system comes at a cost of around $1 million. You won't see the system today. After a few years, they were removed from all planes due to their high cost and questions about their reliability. I was with these wise guys, right? We're all sitting around. I mean, a wise guy. Some of them, one was a real wise guy. The rest were wannabes. And I'm sitting around and I said, I just happened to go, hey, Jindan, right? Right? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, what did I say? Jindan de Yolo, which means live 101 years, right? All of a sudden, one of my friends hits me. He goes, I go, what did I do? And everybody's looking. I said, what happened? There were three guys. One was 94, one was 98, <laughs> one, one was like 89. He goes, you can't say that. They're really close. Yes. So I had to say, I had to go, hey, senza fini, which means without end. So I said, here am I making a toast. I'm in a jam already. Things just got deadly for the Houthis today. Because four Houthi boats attacked a commercial ship and then attempted to board it this morning, which resulted in several U.S. helicopters responding to the distress call. And the U.S. says it began to issue verbal calls to the Houthis, but then they were shot at, and so they sank three of the four boats in self-defense, killing the crews. With the Houthis confirming that ten of their members were killed by the U.S. Navy. And now you've got the London Times saying that the U.K. is preparing an airstrike campaign on the Houthis in coordination with the U.S. and potentially even France and Italy. With the U.S. also expected to release a final warning in the coming hours. So follow to stay in the loop. Iran has seized a Chinese-owned Marshall Islands flag. And that was the military shorts. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now the motivational shorts. I faced this conundrum with my clients because these were people who were worth a lot of money per hour. They, they were making $750 to $2,000 an hour. And they were working... 16-hour days. I mean, I had a woman, she bought a new microwave because it, she could 
microwave her coffee in 10 seconds instead of 20 seconds in the morning. Like, I mean, her life was scheduled. She's hyperproductive. And a lot of these people struggled, as you might expect, with work-life balance, that cliche. And one of the things I learned quite rapidly was that I could get these people to schedule out vacations two or three months in advance. If they scheduled three months ahead, they could take three or four days. And this is something to think about when you're being driven by that demon of work is they became more productive. And so you might ask yourself, it's like, well, you have all these wonderful opportunities and you want to have your nose to the grindstone and make sacrifices to the proper gods. But it could be that if you took a day off a week, you'd be much better at that. If you're going to teach your kids that there is such a thing as right and wrong in this world, and it's not right or wrong because you say, it's right or wrong because God says, or it's right or wrong because it's just right or wrong, there's going to be a time where they catch you being wrong. I remember coming home from work, I was very upset. My two youngest kids had destroyed the kitchen. I was back in the military, man. You do this, you do that, you get to your room. I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, go. Oldest daughter, who was 13, 14 at the time, comes and knocks on my door and says, Daddy, can I talk to you for a second? Yes, sweetheart, go ahead. Daddy, I don't think you handled that very well and she goes daddy (laughs) the reason why Allie and luke were down there in the kitchen is because they got permission from mommy to make you something and they were really really proud of being able to make this for you when you got home and now they're too scared to say anything because of how upset you are and i looked at my daughter and i said sweetheart you're right i am wrong one of the disadvantages of being high in agreeableness is that you're more likely to be a target for disagreeable types. So agreeable people are very generous and kind and they're not backstabbing and they're empathetic and they're self-sacrificing. And, yeah. and But there have been computer simulations, very sophisticated computer simulations by evolutionary biologists of what happens if you get agreeable people together. So imagine you have a population of people and all of them are agreeable. Yes. And so they're cooperating away. It's all very kind and nice. But if you put one person in there who has psychopathic traits... Yes. He just takes over everything. Yeah. And so the agreeable people always have the problem of how do you handle free riders, cheaters, and psychopaths? And, you know, you might be utopian and say, well, those people just don't exist and they shouldn't exist and we shouldn't structure our societies that way. But that ain't going to cut it because psychopaths are always 3% of the population. They vary between 1 and 5. Four things you must quit in order to grow closer to God. Number one, worrying. Worry is worship to the devil, and God says we shall cast our worries unto him and be anxious for nothing. So give it to God and let him take the weight of your worries. Number two, speaking word curses over your life. Life and death are in the power of your tongue. What you speak, you become. So stop speaking negatively over yourself. Instead, start speaking God's word over your life so that you can start to see yourself the way he does. Number three, allowing your fears to control you. The devil is a liar. God does not give you a spirit of fear. The enemy places fears and doubts in your mind to prevent you from becoming who God has called you to be. But remember, God walks before you and he's always with you, so why should you be afraid? Number four, people-pleasing. Stop making decisions based off of what other people will think about you. When you're walking in God, you're not going to be liked because you make decisions opposite of what people think is right. Focus on pleasing God. Seven small habits that will change your life in six months. One, make your bed. This will give you a boost and set the tone for the day. Your future self will thank you. Two, take an internal shower. Drink a glass of water as soon as you wake up in the morning. 60% of your body is water. Replenish it. Three, go outdoors. Every morning, when you step outside at dawn, a healthy wave of cortisol is released, allowing you to be more alert. 4. Review your goals daily. Remind yourself who you want to become. Those who have goals are 10 times more successful than those who don't. And those who write down their goals are 3 times more successful. 5. Read a passage of philosophy or scriptures before looking at your phone in the morning. Start the day with a bit of wisdom. 6. Water a plant. Learn to care for something other than yourself. Pets are great. We believe that students, because of the fragility of their mental health, should be shielded from uncomfortable conversations. And the clinical reality is very, very clear. It's very clear. This is one thing that all reliable clinicians have agreed upon over a 50-year period, which is that voluntary encounter with what you're afraid of and even potentially disgusted by is clearly salutary and curative. And so... 
you want to give people a hair of the dog that bit them constantly, right, to fortify them against challenge. And the best way to do that is to engage voluntarily in the exchange of, of ideas, of representations. There are times when you just lose, no matter what you do. You reap what you sow, yes, but... What does that mean, yes, but? Well... The farmer plants his crop in the spring, takes care of it all summer, loves his family, works 10, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, is an honorable man. Come fall, he's got a beautiful crop, and he deserves every bit of it. But the day before he sends the combines into the field, a hailstorm comes along and beats it all in the ground, which means you lose. Somebody says, well, what did he do wrong? Answer, nothing. Sometimes it's going to hail on your crop and rain on your parade. So you've got to get ready for that or you will be naive. That's just part of the life arrangement. Now, if you said to me that I had a choice, either my son had a serious risk of starving or dying from a preventable disease in the next year, or I could press a button and he would live. He would go to school. He would bring his first girlfriend home. He'd go to university and graduate and become a woke idiot. <laughs> and then he'd get a job and get married and have children and become a man. But all I have to do is press this button. And for every day of my son's life, a giant plume of CO2 is going to re get released into the atmosphere. Now, you're all very young, and most of you are not parents. Let me tell you something. There is not a parent in the world who would not smash that button so hard their hand bled. And that was the Motivational Shorts. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now the Daily Laws for January the 9th. January 9th. Find inspiration from your heroes. As a young boy growing up in North Carolina, John Coltrane felt different and strange. He was much more serious than his schoolmates. He experienced emotional and spiritual longings he did not know how to verbalize. He drifted into music more as a hobby, taking up the saxophone and playing in his high school band. Then a few years later, he saw the great jazz saxophonist Charlie Bird Parker perform live, and the sounds Parker produced touched Coltrane to the core. Something primal and personal came through Parker's saxophone, a voice from deep within. Coltrane suddenly saw the means for expressing his uniqueness and giving a voice to his own spiritual longings. He began to practice the instrument with such intensity that within a decade he transformed himself into perhaps the greatest jazz artist of his era. You must understand the following. In order to master a field, you must love the subject and feel a profound connection to it. Your interest must transcend the field and border on the religious. For Coltrane, it was not music, but giving voice to powerful emotions. Daily Law are there people whose work affects you in a powerful way? Analyze this and use them as models. Mastery, Chapter 1. Discover your calling, the life's task. And that was uh, the Daily Law for January the 9th. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Bishop Robert Barron. Peace be with you. Friends, if you've been following my work the last couple of years, you know that I've been interested in um, Jordan Peterson, the psychologist from uh, Toronto who's become quite a celebrity on uh, social media. And Peterson, um, like Joseph Campbell before him, is a Jungian, so a student of C.G. Jung, the great 20th century psychologist. And Jung bequeathed to us this idea of the archetypes of the collective unconscious, these sort of patterns of thought and meaning that permeate so much of culture. 
And they can see him then in myth and literature and religion, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Campbell, by the way, had a big impact on George Lucas, who produced the Star Wars movies. And you can hear a lot of Jungian and archetypal overtones, of course, in those stories. Well, both Campbell and Jordan Peterson are very interested in this archetype of the hero's journey. Now, you can see it, indeed, in Star Wars. Think Luke Skywalker beginning as this sort of mild-mannered figure and then going through this long process and becoming a hero. You can see it in almost all the superhero movies that are so popular now. Look at the Spider-Man story, etc. So all over the literature of the world. Now, here's why I want to talk about it with you. As Peterson lays it out, this is on display very strongly in the Bible. Now, here's what I mean. Peterson's telling is that someone begins in the familiar with a kind of cozy domesticity, what they're well aware of, what they're comfortable with. And then they're summoned somehow out of that cozy domesticity into adventure. And they go forth into terra incognita. They go into some kind of unknown land, some unknown territory. And that was Bishop Robert Barron, back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Ayn Rand's Thought of the Day. Quote, If one upholds freedom, one must uphold man's individual rights. If one upholds man's individual rights, one must uphold his right to his own life to his own liberty, to the pursuit of his own happiness, which means one must uphold a political system that guarantees and protects these rights, which means the politico-economic system of capitalism. Unquote. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the 33 Strategies of War. Here are further reflections on morale strategy. From Rules of War and Bravery by Mubarak Shah. You can do nothing with an army that is an amalgam of a hundred people here, a hundred people there, and so on. What can be achieved with 4,000 men united and standing shoulder to shoulder... You cannot do with 40 or even 400,000 men who are divided and pulled this way and that by internal conflicts. From King Henry V by William Shakespeare. What stronger breastplate than a heart untainted? Thrice is he armed that hath his quarrel just, and he but naked, though locked up in steel, whose conscience with injustice is corrupted. By Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. There are always moments when the commander's place is not back with his staff, but up with the troops. It is sheer nonsense to say that maintenance of the men's morale is the job of the battalion commander alone. The higher the rank, the greater the effect of the example. The men tend to feel no kind of contact with the commander who they know is sitting somewhere in headquarters. What they want is what might be termed a physical contact with him. In moments of panic, fatigue, or disorganization, or when something out of the ordinary has to be demanded from them, the personal example of the commander works wonders, especially if he has had the wit to create some sort of legend around himself. From Mastering the Art of War, Zhu Liang's and Liu Ji's commentaries on the classic by Sun Tzu. During the spring and autumn era, the state of Qi was invaded by the states of Jin and Yan. At first, the invaders overcame the military forces of Qi. One of the eminent nobles of the court of Qi recommended the martialist Tianrongju to the lord of Qi. To this man, later called Suma Rongju, is attributed the famous military handbook, Suma's Art of War. The Lord of Qi then summoned Rongju to discuss military matters with him. The Lord was very pleased with what Rongju had to say, and he made him a general, 
appointing him to lead an army to resist the aggression of the forces of Yan and Jin. Rongju said, I am lowly in social status, yet the Lord has promoted me from the ranks and placed me above even the grandees. The soldiers are not yet loyal to me, and the common people are not familiar with me. As a man of little account, my authority is slight. I request one of your favorite ministers, someone honored by the state, to be overseer of the army. The Lord acceded to this request and appointed a nobleman to be the overseer. Rongju took his leave, arranging to meet the nobleman at the military headquarters at noon the following day. Then Rongju hastened back to set up a sundial and a water clock to await the new overseer. Now this new overseer was a proud and haughty aristocrat, and he imagined that as overseer he was leading his own army. Because of his pride and arrogance, he did not see any need to hurry, in spite of his promise with Rongju, the martial master. His relatives and close associates gave him a farewell party, and he stayed to drink with them. At noon the next day, the new overseer had not arrived at headquarters. Rongju took down the sundial and emptied the water clock. He assembled the troops and informed them of the agreement with the new overseer. That evening the nobleman finally arrived. Rongju said to him, Why are you late? He said, My relatives, who are grandees, gave me a farewell party, so I stayed for that. Rongju said, On the day a military leader receives his orders, he forgets about his home. When a promise is made in the face of battle, one forgets his family. When the war drums sound, one forgets his own body. Now hostile states have invaded our territory. The state is in an uproar. The soldiers are exposed at the borders. The Lord cannot rest or enjoy his food. The lives of the common people all depend on you. How can you talk about farewell parties? Rangju then summoned the officer in charge of military discipline and asked him, According to military law, what happens to someone who arrives later than an appointed time? The officer replied, He is supposed to be decapitated. Terrified, the aristocrat had a messenger rush back to report this to the Lord and beseech him for help. But the haughty nobleman was executed before the messenger even returned, and his execution was announced to the army. The soldiers all shook with fear. Eventually, the Lord sent an emissary with a letter pardoning the nobleman, who was, after all, the new overseer of the army. The emissary galloped right into camp on horseback with the Lord's message. Rangju said, when a general is in the field, there are orders he doesn't take from the ruler. He also said to the disciplinary officer, it is a rule that there shall be no galloping through camp. Yet now the emissary has done just that. What should be done with him? The officer said he should be executed. The emissary was petrified, but Rangju said, it is not proper to kill an emissary of the Lord, and had two of the emissary's attendants executed in his stead. This, too, was announced to the army. Rangju sent the emissary back to report to the Lord, and then he set out with the army. When the soldiers made camp, Rangju personally oversaw the digging of wells, construction of stoves, preparation of food and drink, and care of the sick. He shared all of the supplies of the leadership with the soldiers, personally eating the same rations as they. He was especially kind to the weary and weakened. After three days, Rangju called the troops to order. Even those who were ill wanted to go along, eager to go into battle for Rangju. When the armies of Jin and Yan heard about this, they withdrew from the state of Qi. Now Rangju led his troops to chase them down and strike them. Eventually, he recovered lost territory and returned with the army victorious. From Aesop's Fables the Wolves and the Dogs at War One day, enmity broke out between the dogs and the wolves. The dogs elected a Greek to be their general, but he was in no hurry to engage in battle, despite the violent intimidation of the wolves. Understand, he said to them, why I deliberately put off engagement. It is because one must always take counsel before acting. The wolves, on the one hand, are all of the same race, all of the same color, but our soldiers have very varied habits, and each one is proud of his own country. Even their colors are not uniform. Some are black, some russet, 
and others white or ash gray. How can I lead into battle those who are not in harmony and who are all dissimilar? In all armies, it is unity of will and purpose which assures victory over the enemy. By Colonel Charles Saint-Dantopic. Hannibal was the greatest general of antiquity by reason of his admirable comprehension of the morale of combat, of the morale of the soldier, whether his own or the enemy's. He shows his greatness in this respect in all the different incidents of war, of campaign, of action. His men were not better than the Roman soldiers. They were not as well armed, one half less in number. Yet he was always the conqueror. He understood the value of morale. He had the absolute confidence of his people. In addition, he had the art in commanding an army of always securing the advantage of morale. By Colonel Charles Ardant de Pique. Four brave men who do not know each other will not dare to attack a lion. Four less brave, but knowing each other well, sure of their reliability, and consequently of mutual aid, will attack resolutely. There is the science of the organization of armies in a nutshell. From the Iliad by Homer The Greeks met the Trojans without a tremor. Agamemnon ranged among them, commanding, Be men, my friends, fight with valor and with a sense of shame before your comrades. You are less likely to be killed with a sense of shame. Running away never won glory or a fight. From The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane He suddenly lost concern for himself and forgot to look at a menacing fate. He became not a man, but a member. He felt that something of which he was a part, a regiment, an army, a cause, or a country, was in a crisis. He was welded into a common personality, which was dominated by a single desire. For some moments he could not flee, no more than a little finger can commit a revolution from a hand. There was a consciousness always of the presence of his comrades about him, he felt the subtle battle brotherhood more potent even than the cause for which they were fighting. It was a mysterious fraternity, born of the smoke and danger of death. From King Henry V by William Shakespeare Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. Then lend the eye a terrible aspect. Let it pry through the portage of the head like the brass cannon. Let the brow o'erwhelm it as fearfully as doth a galled rock o'erhang and jutty his confounded base, swilled with the wild and wasteful ocean. Now set the teeth and stretch the nostril wide. Hold hard to the breath and bend up every spirit to his full height. On, on, you noblest English, whose blood is fet from fathers of war-proof. Father that, like so many Alexanders, have in these parts from morn till even fought and sheathed their swords for lack of argument. Dishonor not your mothers. Now attest that those whom you called fathers did beget you. Be copy now to men of grosser blood and teach them how to war. And you, good yeoman, whose limbs were made in England, show us here the metal of your pasture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding, which I doubt not. For there is none of you so mean and base that hath not noble luster in your eyes. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit. And upon this charge cry, God for Harry, England, and St. George. 
And that was uh, chapter 7, Transform Your War into a Crusade from the 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Donald Trump's presidential inaugural address from January 20th, 2017. Chief Justice Roberts, President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, fellow Americans, and people of the world, thank you. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Together, we will determine the course of America and the world for many, many years to come. We will face challenges. We will confront hardships. But we will get the job done. Every four years, we gather on these steps to carry out the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. And we are grateful to President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama for their gracious aid throughout this transition. They have been magnificent. Thank you. Today's ceremony, however, has very special meaning. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another, but we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our land. That all changes starting right here and right now. Because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. It belongs to everyone gathered here today and everyone watching all across America. This is your day. This is your celebration. And this, the United States of America, is your country. What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. January 20th, 2017, will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are just and reasonable demands of righteous 
people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation, an education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We are one nation, and their pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams, and their success will be our success. We share one heart, one home, and one glorious destiny. The oath of office I take today is an oath of allegiance to all Americans. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. We've defended other nations' borders while refusing to defend our own. And spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. We've made other countries rich, while the wealth, strength, and confidence of our country has dissipated over the horizon. One by one, the factories shuttered and left our shores, with not even a thought about the millions and millions of American workers that were left behind. The wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed all across the world. But that is the past. And now we are looking only to the future. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. America will start winning again, winning like never before. We will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our borders. We will bring back our wealth, and we will bring back our dreams. We will build new roads and highways and bridges and airports and tunnels and railways all across our wonderful nation. We will get our people off of welfare and back to work, rebuilding our country with American hands and American labor. We will follow two simple rules. Buy American and hire American. We will seek friendship and goodwill with the nations of the world, but we do so with the understanding 
that it is the right of all nations to put their own interests first. We do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but rather to let it shine as an example. We will shine for everyone to follow. We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth. At the bedrock of our politics will be a total allegiance to the United States of America. And through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We must speak our minds openly, debate our disagreements honestly, but always pursue solidarity. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. There should be no fear. We are protected and we will always be protected. We will be protected by the great men and women of our military and law enforcement. And most importantly, we will be protected by God. Finally, we must think big and dream even bigger. In America, we understand that a nation is only living as long as it is striving. We will no longer accept politicians who are all talk and no action, constantly complaining, but never doing anything about it. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. We stand at the birth of a new millennium ready to unlock the mysteries of space, to free the earth from the miseries of disease, and to harness the energies, industries, and technologies of tomorrow. A new national pride will stir our souls, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. It's time to remember that old wisdom our soldiers will never forget, that whether we are black or brown, or white, we all bleed the same red blood of patriots. We all enjoy the same glorious freedoms, and we all salute the same great American flag. And whether a child is born in the urban sprawl of Detroit or the windswept plains of Nebraska, they look up at the same night sky they fill their heart with the same dreams, and they are infused with the breath of life by the same almighty creator. So to all Americans in every city near and far, small and large, from mountain to mountain, from ocean to ocean, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. And your courage and goodness and love will forever guide us along the way. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, Together, we will make America great again. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you. God bless America.
And that was the inaugural address of former President Donald Trump, January 20th, 2017. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. This is Ron, your host, the only true conservative in the United States. Today, bidding adios to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there and reminding you to be honest, smart, and beautiful and remember that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.